Uh, you know, you like a movie when you're 13. Mm-hmm. And this movie stays with you. Uh, it stays with you so much that you end up reading the novelization of the film. Um, <laughs> wow. Yeah, on I a road trip been... with your family. Yeah. yeah. Um, you grow a deeper uh, understanding of the plot mechanics and uh, character dynamics within the film. Uh, and then you forget about a movie for years until your friend tells you you're going to watch it for your podcast that you do together. <laughs> and then you watch that film and you think, man, I was a damn. Ah, oh, man, my parents were right. I really didn't know jack shit when I was a teenager, huh? Yeah. I had bad taste. Anyway. I, I just know. It felt like good cold open banter. That's a fun place to start. I'm just curious about the idea of there not being horseless carriages, and the first one anyone ever sees is this super ornate, you know, six-wheeled Bentley monstrosity. Yeah, it's, it's, both, uh, it's both a Rolls-Royce Rolls and uh, a Ferrari. Uh, yeah, it's an astonishing car. Yes, uh, which horrifying. also takes no damage. Oh, yeah. Takes no damage. It looks like it's made out of porcelain, but it is, in fact, a brick shit house. Yes, it is It is um, ad- adamantium. Uh, adamantium. Whatever. Adama- what is, how do you say? Adamantium? Adamantium. Adamantium. That's it. Yeah, not yeah. vibranium. It's not the other one. If you're British. It's an aluminium. <laughs> yeah. With an aluminium <laughs> chassis. Um. I'm sorry. Saying it's adamantium. Well, one more time. Adamantium. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I was trying to. I was trying because it's al, al, yeah, aluminium. Aluminium. Uh, aluminium. Sorry. Aluminium. God, that's. Whoa, that's a good riff. Uh, thank you for that. Hi, uh, Dustin. Do you want to do the the thing that you do? Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Good Trash Genrecast. Yeah, we we go. gather around a table. We discuss the films you'll never discuss. A film says course. This week's film is no exception. As we look at the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, directed by a person, made in a year. I don't know any of this information because I don't actually care. And uh, we'll talk more about it. And I'm sure um, all the information we dropped appropriately. But I am still Dustin. I am still Arthur. I am still Dalton. This is this is nice. You know, we we didn't really acknowledge on the last recording that uh, we were back around a, a physical table together. Well, we weren't. Oh, that's right. We just did uh, Patreon Mostly, stuff yeah. last week. Yes. Yeah, this, so this, this is, is the first, first show, show proper. Show. Ooh. Now, listener, this does not mean you should go to a bar and start licking door handles. By the way, uh, please don't. We're staying inside a lot. Uh, we're not touching each other uh, as hard as that is. Um, boy, is it difficult. Um, so yeah, it's it's nice though. There's a certain je ne sais quoi you lose when uh, I can't look at your faces. I can't read how you're responding to the dumb shit I'm saying. And Dalton can't railroad the entire show and take ownership of everything. So I am a much better listener when I can't see your faces weirdly. <laughs> mm. I don't know what that's about. I don't know what that's about either. <laughs> but uh, here we are doing this thing that we do, and what the thing that we do is is analysis, guys. It is not review and that does mean that we're going to spoil the ending of this film uh which is like a 20 year old or something film i don't know close uh, very close yeah 2003 17 years yep. so there you go um i knew it had a year in which it was made um it's almost old enough to vote all it could almost vote and if it voted it would vote for margaret thatcher i was gonna say it, it, it missed the last interesting time to vote or the last time that it mattered so sorry league it's too bad. Also, Dustin, the director of this motion picture, Steve Norrington uh, of, of Blade uh, fame. Oh, I like Blade. Um, <laughs> I, like I know this. you do. That's why I told you who the director was. I, I like this movie, too. But uh, what we're going to do for the show to uh, review it without uh, spoiling or, or analyze it, I guess, without spoiling it, is we're going to give you something of a reprieve in the first part of the show. Synopsis and uh, thumbs up, thumbs down reviews will be spoiler, very gentle. And then after that, we'll get into expanding the syllabus, which might involve a, a bit more significant spoilers. And by the time we get to analysis time, there'll be some music that says we have gotten down to business. You'll know what it is. And once we do that, you will know, dear listener, that all spoiler bets are off. You've been warned. Arthur, hey, buddy. Hey. Good to see you, pal. Yeah, it's fun. Could you um, give a synopsis, please? Oh, I guess I can pull something together real Thanks, quick. Thanks, dude. When the British Empire is backed into a corner by a terrorist known as the Phantom, Britain turns to the most adventurous names in literature, who turn out to really exist in this alternate universe. Legendary hunter Alan Quartermain is recruited to lead the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He is joined by the Invisible Man, or a Invisible Man, Mina Harker, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, who somehow count as two, Captain Nemo, and American intelligence agent Tom Sawyer. Together, the team must work to bring down the Phantom before he wipes out Venice. But it won't be easy, of course. There's a traitor in their midst. Released on my birthday, July 11, 2003, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, or LXG, was made on a budget of $78 million and brought in a worldwide haul of 179 while being panned by critics. Mm. Dustin uh, shot me a look, uh, and, and for reasons he cannot reveal, um, 
I know, I know exactly the joke he was thinking, uh, which was American intelligence. There's an oxymoron. Uh, well, that and Tom Sawyer, appropriate. Yeah. Also, <laughs> yeah. To, nobody makes more sense uh, as a CIA spook than Tom Sawyer. Truly. It truly, truly does. I mean, only Huck Finn makes better sense there as it is. running the FBI. I mean, exactly, yeah. right? I'm saying. Uh, J. Edgar Hoover got nothing on Huckleberry Finn. It is a, a very funny choice, uh, and one that is, uh, we, we haven't even mentioned yet, this is adapted from a graphic novel by uh, the very famous Alan Moore, yes. uh, Wizard uh, of the Swamps uh, that he is. Uh, he didn't like this movie. He disliked it so much that he said, don't ever put my name on anything ever again, uh, you damn dirty Hollywood movie makers. Uh, Sounds about right. Yeah. Uh, also, the last film that Sir Sean Connery ever appeared in. Uh, and the last film that today. Steve Dorrington directed. Yeah. Um, it. Oh, boy. Did this take down uh, careers and personas <laughs> uh, and, and legacies. A lot of people had a lot of feelings about this, as Arthur mentioned, the critics hated it. Um here I we are at the end of all things. Yeah. So Arthur, how did you, this came out on your birthday? Did you? You're you're a motion picture lover. Did you go? I was trying to think about that. I I know I had it on DVD, but I I was trying to remember if I did see it in theaters, and I can't recall. We I may have. I don't know if it even would have played in Stillwell. I definitely did, and I can't I I can't remember why, but I know that I did. Yeah, um, and I, I can't be sure if I did or not. Which hmm. is, I can usually remember. Well, what'd you think of it? Um, well, on this revisit. Yeah, so, uh, first time I'd seen it probably since... Taking my job, yes. sucker. Well, look, or... Arthur and I have laid the groundwork for uh, keeping you on your toes in our remote recording, so I'm just getting any, any chance that I have uh, to steer the show onto the next segment out from under you. He's, I'm going to do he's it. He's testing his leash with you. You're going to pull I, back on the choker. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Oh. Well, look, hey, the... look, I've got the ball and choker if you want. Look, we've been doing the show for almost 10 years, and I'm really, I'm trying to, yeah, wrestle the dynamic away from Dustin. I want Dustin to go from being the leader to being the wizened uh, master. Yeah, this is like when the, the 10-year-old challenges his dad to basketball. and like, I can beat you. And yeah. then the dad just whoops him. It's not like that, is it? It is exactly that. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the last time I tried to challenge my father to a, a fight, he stomped on my big toe. <laughs> Ended it very quickly. Gets the job done. <laughs> Boy, does it. Uh, it's, a, it's an Alan Quartermain lesson, if ever there were one. For sure. Well, hey, Arthur, I would be Damn very it. curious to know what you think about uh, the League of Extraordinary Trickster. Gentlemen. Can you tell us what that would be? Oh, certainly, Dustin, since you asked so kindly. Um, I think this movie is incredibly ambitious and incredibly messy. Uh, it's kind of nice to revisit a comic book movie pre-MCU and pre-Batman Begins. Uh, as those two things totally reshaped. And I think about this movie, I was thinking a lot of, uh, while it's not a comics movie, but I thought a lot of Van Helsing, obviously. I thought a lot of Hellboy, um, sort of that early aughts, pre-2004 type. Uh, superheroes, post-Blade, post pre-Batman Begins. And I think it was a really interesting time. And I think this movie is trying to be somewhat fun and interesting. And I think it's very ambitious in its set pieces and its style. Uh, a good mix of practical and CG. Uh, the CG when it is used doesn't look great, but I mean, it's 17 years old and kind of expected. Um, but there's a lot of set work and a lot of tank work and a lot of practical stuff that I think does work pretty well. Um, it's well plotted. I mean, it's got that kind of diehard Friday the 13th, every 10 minutes something has to happen rule. In fact, I think it moves it quite quickly. I mean, there's a lot of action set pieces where uh, people are getting together and just whooping been up on stuff. Uh, we start with that one with Quartermain in Africa, and then we go to the, when we meet Dorian Gray, and then just a few minutes later, there's another one, and it just kind of snowballs. And I think it helps it move fairly well. Yeah, you said uh, off there in our chat, uh, just the you know the, the pre MCU nature of this kind of being a big deal, and but also the the kind of proto MCU stuff going on here in terms of structure and. Not even plot structure, but like action structure, the way a scene is built around like, okay, now this character is doing their cool ability. Now this character is doing their cool ability. Um, but this whole set piece is for this character. And then we'll, the next one will be about the next character. Like yeah. as you, you said that in the chat and I didn't get to the movie for a couple of days and it was basically all I could think about the entire time I watched the movie. Yeah. A lot of that production design, which I think is pretty strong here. The set design, the, the, the vehicular design, that diesel slash steampunk, whatever we're going to call it, uh, aesthetic is Pretty good. I think the cinematography itself is what flattens it out. It just doesn't look... It looks pretty drab, and I think that's another part of it, just being a two thousand early 2000s movie trying to have a new look and a new style, and it just doesn't land uh, quite well for, for what we're doing here. Um, it's a strong ensemble. you got a lot of British uh, who's-its, uh, who's, or that guys and that girls. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is fun, because uh, for some reason I just assumed this had like an... 
strong, you know, B-list ensemble, but it, it's more like a D-list. I've never even heard that guy's name. I've probably seen him in something. But outside of Sean Connery, you know, there's nobody here. And I think that really helps elevate the, the work and, and not taking spotlight away from certain characters or individuals. And so anchoring it around one lead name uh, is pretty, pretty beneficial. I like a good animated map travel montage. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the animated travel map. Big fan. Uh, I also a big fan of the analog uh, GPS trackers. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. All all that stuff. So those those things are definitely fun for me. Uh, I feel like there are some stakes actually in this one in the end, uh, with what happens to a couple of characters in the final battle. Um, even if the very last shot might upend some of that, I do feel like there are some stakes uh, at play for some of these characters and whether they live or die. I appreciate that about it. Um, I like that the uh, has nothing to do with the movie, but that the, when they released these movies on DVD, uh, they did the classic widescreen version, full screen version, and one had a gold case and one had a silver case, which was just a fun marketing bit. Adorable, yeah. A lot of that man, yeah. That was a, a weird window in the history of DVD releases, huh? Yeah, the widescreen, full screen. Yeah, yeah. Um, but as the movie on, on the whole, I think you know I mentioned it off air. I think this movie's a lot of fun. I, I think it is a hoot. I, I think it's a good time, uh, and then you'll forget it probably the next day. Um, so, you know, take that for what it's worth. Uh, I enjoyed it in the moment, and sometimes that's all you need out of a movie, I think. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Hey, Dalton, what do you think of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? Well, I, I was a little harsh in the banter because that's funnier. But, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with Arthur. It's it's fine. It's a it's a not terribly inoffensive film. And, uh, I don't know, th- this stretch of years, uh, the, kind of the, the first half of the aughts, is, is a, a period of cinema that we've covered a lot on this show. Uh, I think a lot of that just has to do with our ages and kind of when we came to like movies and also, you know, the kind of dumb movies that are often streaming easily. Um, But yeah, I'm not saying we're scholars on this time period in American cinema, but we've watched a lot of it. We've talked about a lot of it and a lot of it's bad and kind of gross uh, and misguided uh, and uninteresting. And League is none of those things for all the things that it is, which is sweaty uh, in its plotting. Um, and messy it's and it's Africa. Editing. We're all sweating. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> and it's and it's Africa uh, stuff. But again, even for that, it's you know got a a, a, a a shady glance for the British Empire throughout its runtime. Um, so again, all, all of these things that we we look at uh, this period that the further we get from it, the more it starts to look like the 1980s. Uh, and the more we look at these movies, uh, the more we find like kind of these weird hidden gems that were trying to do something interesting, despite the fact that like the American pop psyche had recently been exploded, uh, both well, literally and figuratively. Uh, it's just a weird run of decade or weird run of years um, for American movies. And this one is squarely, as Arthur said, kind of of a piece with other ones, right? Hellboy, Van Helsing. I was right there with you, Arthur. Uh, very kind of similar aesthetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I looked at the, the production design, uh, the, the art design, which uh, we've got five credit art designers and one production designer. But some, some notable names, people who've worked on things, you'll go, oh, cool. They worked on that, too. Uh, a couple of uh, uh, future uh, collaborators with Guillermo del Toro on Pacific Rim. It's a who's who, and and I I think that is the strength of the movie, as Arthur's already said. This look is really cool. Uh, I I think the problem is uh, there's only one look they really nail, and it's Nemo's, and that kind of gets spread out through the rest of the movie um, as much as it possibly can be, and everything else is kind of eh. And as Arthur said, the cinematography itself is, you know, not uh, it's perfectly competent, uh, but it doesn't do anything for the, the bits of the aesthetic and design that are not as cool as the Nemo stuff, which, to be fair, when you make something that cool, it is really hard for the rest of the movie to match up, and that's that's a bummer. Uh, but again, yeah, it's it's fine. It's fairly inoffensive and uh, pretty disposable. Um, it goes down smooth, and, you know, not much to write home about afterwards, other than, uh, again, the weird stuff we've talked about. Uh, the last movie Sean Connery made, uh, it's thudding response uh, critically, and it's kind of limp towards a profitable box office run. It's uh, one of a, mi- a million movie stories like this, but it is kind of an interesting one in terms of where it sits in this, um, the, the arc and history of comic book movies. I like it. It's fun. It's cheeky. Um, I, I like uh, Jason Fleming a lot. Arthur mentioned some of these these character actors who show up throughout it. Jason Fleming is Jekyll and Hyde. Um, has had some fun turns and quite a few things, um, some Guy Ritchie movies and stuff. And Shane West, um, uh, from a walk to remember, a, a timeless teen classic. I don't know. I like him as Tom Sawyer. Uh, it's, it is an interesting cast, though. You're right, Arthur. Um, 
it is kind of Sean Connery's game, and he seems to know that. And it, it does hurt the movie a little bit, and this troubled production it famously had, I think, shows most in the action scenes. As I said, the edit's kind of weird. Um, and uh, the the con of, of Arthur pointing out its MCU uh, similarities made me notice uh, the, the bad parts of that, which are yeah these really choppy fight scenes that don't kind of have much connective tissue in terms of the geography of a fight, in terms of who's fighting who, what the stakes of them doing a fight are. It's just like this person's doing a cool thing, and now this person's doing a cool thing. Yeah, the fight in the in Dorian Gray's house, uh, where it is like punch, cut to next person, punch, cut it is to the a next mess. It is like, oh my god, yeah. for sure, for sure, it is truly a mess. And I, I that's as good enough a place to leave it uh, after those kind of nice middling things I had to say about it. For all that, yeah, the action set pieces are really cool and ambitious, but you know they're not always constructed super great. Uh, we do get some cool monster designs in this that are gross in a way I love, and maybe we'll talk about that later. Alrighty, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. So, what I want to say in terms of review is that I think this is a movie that is better than it is. That the movie itself ain't great. Mm-hmm. The movie itself is it's just there. They're generally inoffensive. It goes down easy and smooth, as Dalton said. And uh, that, okay, I'm interested in Alan Quartermain. I'm interested in Jekyll Hyde. I'm interested in Mina Murray uh, Harker. I'm interested in the, An Invisible Man, not the um, an indefinite article. Very, very appropriate there. And, you know, all the various characters. Uh, Tom Sawyer may be the least of those, but he's got a particular kind of role, and he's playing it, you know, just fine. Uh, I I like all that stuff, and all that stuff kind of works for me. And what it does, though, um, insofar as the plot makes sense, and as Arthur pointed out, the plot does move in this sort of investigatory Indiana Jones-esque kind of mystery. I think that reference to the uh, animated uh, travel yeah, totally. is yeah. very, very Indiana Jones, yeah. which is very, very, you know, 1930s uh, serial yeah. films uh, kind of stuff. That It's doing all those things in a way that is entertaining and fun. It's got an, a particular kind of aesthetic, again, this sort of Victorian science fiction uh, never was kind of anachronistic kind of technologies and those kind of things, you know, using Jules Verne and H.G. Wells-esque uh, kinds of uh, visions of science fiction from the turn of the uh, 20th century. It's doing all that stuff well, but what it does that makes it better than it is is that it keeps you thinking, oh, what about a real world in which there was Amina Harker? What about a real world in which, you know, this? And, and of course, then you're casting it with the other characters. You're going, wait, wait, wait. We need Victor von Frankenstein and his monster. Yeah. That's what this movie needs. And so you start sort of thinking about these other things, and what's going on in your head is actually better than what's going on here. And I think the reason what this movie what this movie does without the same sort of marketing and without the same sort of uh, just capturing of the cultural imagination is actually is doing what Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope is doing. Yeah, the it, way in which you're you've got these action figures. I don't know anything about Boba Fett, and the the movies, the initial movies, tell you nothing about Boba Fett. But everyone loves Boba Fett. You know why? Because he's cool. Because he looks cool, and you want to sort of invent. You want to play the action figure story more. You want to play the role playing game version. You want to sort of keep on thinking about this kind of Victorian adventure fantasy science fiction sort of world all rammed together. Yeah, right? that first shot of the Phantom, you're like, hey, who's this G.I. Joe looking guy? Yeah. Uh, what's the what's this weird dude's deal? Yeah, it, it's it, it is a uh, a true imaginarium of a film. It really just does throw a lot of cool stuff at your face. And, and so your headcanon makes a better movie than what totally. you see, if that makes sense. Yes, so, I'm on board with what you're saying. But that's something I kind of like. Because I am much more interested in the phenomenology of watching a movie than I am with the actual formal bits of what you encounter, uh, oftentimes, especially with this kind of filmmaking. And uh, this, kind of, this kind of filmmaking being sort of blockbuster, action-y, set-PC, mm-hmm. sci-fi, you know, uh, action epics. Uh, and so, for me, I like it a lot. Uh, the performances themselves by the various characters, I like them. I want more Mina Harker. I want less Dorian Gray unless you recast him. Yeah. If you recast him, I want lots more Dorian Gray <laughs> because I have seen a Dorian Gray that I'm fascinated by, and that's the guy in Penny Dreadful. And yeah. so he's so good. And yeah, if, if I you, mean that's that's if, the thing. If you had that Dorian Gray, then we're doing Just something. Poor, folks. poor Stuart Townsend. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's, he's God fun. bless. But him. yeah, man, who the door? I can't think of that actor's name. But yeah, the Dorian Gray in Penny Dreadful is 
Just great. So Just fantastic. So, I mean, there are ways to get there, if that makes sense. And you can sort of play with these gothic tropes, these Victorian tropes, these sort of steampunk meets diesel punk kind of tropes. You can do all this sort of stuff and invent this world. And I think the movie, again, serviceably achieves a plot, character development, action pieces. Although, again, you guys mentioned the geography and the sense of space in the fight scenes, which are kind of wonky and you're totally right. Those things are problematic. Although I gotta say, I love my man Captain Nemo doing his kung fu. It's so it's cool. cool. It's it, so yeah. His fight choreography is really neat. He's the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all about my man Nemo. It's badass. Yeah. It's it's that the things that you are shown a character doing are usually cool, even when they have to like convince you that Sean Connery is still like a physically able combatant. Yeah, you ought to make him just into a Quigley Down Under and just leave it at that and move on. Through a lot, a lot of right crosses he's doing, huh? Yeah. Anyway, which is fine. Uh, yeah, it's they just show you some people doing some cool things, but there is no sense of like why anybody's fighting anybody else. But the ideas are cool, and the cross cutting between the different fights happening is is interesting. Yeah, and again, it's dramatically I, tense. It, it, it's exactly it, it serves an emotional. Emotional core, even though you know, does not quite click all my buttons. Oh, like in a my, technical in my action yeah. sort of fight scene uh, brain. But that being said, it's fun. But it's fun again because I like this world, and uh, for so for me, it succeeds more than it does. It's better yeah. than it is um, because of what's going on in the Imaginarium inside my head right now as I'm thinking about this kind of world and what characters I would populate it with and what sort of circumstances I would place them in. And I'm thinking about them getting old. I'm thinking about sort of, you know, the Germans building the bomb in World War II and uh, that whole, you know, V-1 rockets and whatnot. That kind of adventure with an aging you know, set of, you know, Mr. Hydes and whatnot. Now there, sure, sure, we got sure. something going. And so, yeah, I, I dig it more than I should. Do you know in both the second volume of the comics and in the, uh, you know, hoped for but never uh, come to fruition sequel to this film, it's, uh, it's a War of the Worlds riff, right? You know oh, that? no, I did not, but yeah. cool. Yeah, I uh, thought you would like that. I'm there for it. I, I rewatched War of the Worlds last week, actually. Which one? Uh, the original. Okay. Uh, it's the 53 one. So. The radio broadcast? Uh, I did not listen to the radio broadcast. <laughs> I have listened to it before, and it's bet. it's quite good. I bet it is. It is, it is quite I'm good. Sure. Orson Welles is a um, good narrator, it turns out. He had a good voice. So He did. He uh, did. Champagne. Except I watched The Lady from Shanghai, where he tries to do an Irish accent oh, about boy. 25% of the time. <laughs> yeah, it's Hell very yeah. Kevin Costner in First of Teaser. You're not wrong. Yeah, it's, so, it's a hoot. Oh, so he's doing Norson Wells. You know what? He's a genius. I take it all back. <laughs> Prince of Thieves is Kevin a masterpiece. I, it, Orson Os- Welles. Throw all the Oscars at his head until he has contusions. I can't wait till we do our uh, Costner-Orson Welles compar- uh, p- comparison piece uh, series. God, that'll be a weird marathon. <laughs> We do Citizen Kane and Waterworld and call it a day. I'm just seeing his uh, Oscar speech. I don't think I'll survive the whiplash, truly. In which he bisects an Oscar with an arrow. That's <laughs> what I want more than anything. He lights the musical number on full fire with a flaming arrow. Hey, so it turns out after... Orson we- Welles eating all the fish sticks. <laughs> <laughs> um, Orson Welles really is a, a figure of high comedy, truly. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, I, I know that Citizen Kane's supposed to be a good film, but when anytime somebody says Orson Welles, I do think of the champagne commercial, of course, but first I actually think of him uh, as a cartoon caricature in the Animaniacs. Yeah. Yes. First first image that comes to mind for me, for yep. obvious reasons, but... Same. Yeah, Simpsons. he's just high comedy, Orson Welles, Well, Wells, in my made-up headcanon, so they don't hand him an Oscar, they just hand him a snow globe, and he doesn't even notice, and he gives his whole speech, yeah. you know, the whole time. Perfect. <laughs> uh, Perfect. It's Cassavetes who did Last Picture Show, right? Uh, yes. Uh, there's a... When they do... Last picture show on mm-hmm. Unspooled. Uh, they interview Cassavetes, and he goes into this thing about how Orson Welles stayed with him in his guest house for a while and has some I pretty fun. Did listen to this? About yeah, this. yeah. yeah it's, it's a hoot. Uh, well, Orson Welles, it turns out, will eat all the ice cream in your fridge. <laughs> yes. Well, <laughs> checks out. Yeah. I you started saying that Arthur I was like, wait a second. I know I listened to this episode of Unspooled, and I wasn't sure where you were going at first. And yeah, I, was, I remembered yeah, well, that. Orson Welles was it. not a man with like a biological problem that he put on weight. Orson Welles was doing a full time job of putting on and keeping <laughs> yeah. that weight. He was, yeah, he was doing that intentionally. You know, he was having a great time. Yeah, he was. Uh, so the next thing we do is uh, we, we got to like actually think about this movie a little <laughs> we, bit harder. We should huh? you know what we ought to do. We ought to construct some classes. Is um, that what we're gonna have to do is, now? Is that what we're gonna do? Yes, it is. You back up off of me, sucker. Uh, I was I was really setting you up for that one. I didn't want to steal it from. Uh, you. Don't come for the king. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So, uh, anyway, yeah, we're going to construct a 
fake class in which we are teaching this movie alongside other films and or readings. And so you get to name the class, what kind of class it is, and how you would use this film to uh, achieve whatever sort of pedagogical goals you may happen to have. So I'm going to go to you first, Arthur, and ask you what class you're teaching and how are you using the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, or LXG. Yeah, so I think for this one, I'm, I'm going to keep it simple. I think... Th- I, I didn't get into my review, but I, I really am a sucker for a movie that puts a bunch of characters together that are known properties. Yeah. Uh, Freddy versus Jason, your Avengers, your uh, this. Uh, and so I, I think it's just fun to see these characters together and just run with the Penny Dreadfuls. Another example mm-hmm. of that. I haven't got to watch. I've seen a few episodes, but I haven't watched much. But just it's that concept good. is good. That concept is an instant hook for me. That yeah. You're going to put these characters together. Um, I think it stems back to this cartoon I watched as a kid. Uh, it was a drug awareness cartoon. I don't know if you're familiar, um, but this kid like gets a uh, gets some drugs in him, and then mm-hmm. like all these cartoon characters have to like pitch in to save the day. Like sounds right. Uh, one of the Ninja Turtles is there. Garfield I've is there. Seen this. Uh, what? I think it's sponsored by Ronald McDonald House. Uh, who the else? Teenage Ninja Turtles are in it, right? Yeah, one of them or all of them. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Bugs Bunny, I think, shows up. Incredible. It's wild. I'll have to find it and <laughs> tell you about it. Because uh, as a kid, I watched it all the time. It's just uh, an advertisement for why you should do drugs because you can yeah. see all your cartoon you, yeah, friends. Yeah, there it is. That's what I was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you were thinking the same thing as me. Yeah, a bit backhanded. Uh, anyway. Uh, so for this class, I think uh, I'm going to keep it simple. I think this is just a straight lit class, some ac- okay. adventure literature, some horror literature, some gothic stuff. Uh, and we're going to just visit these characters in their home worlds. And then uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is just going to be the dessert at the end of the course to tie it all together. So I think, you know, the least familiar I am with is Alan Quartermain. So I think King Solomon's Minds by Sir H. Ryder Haggard uh, is probably where we start uh, with Quartermain. And then from there, you do Bram Stoker's Dracula. I just want to tell you something that my first assumption, because I hadn't heard of Quartermain before doing research for the podcast, because I just thought, oh, so we're going to like make this guy Q eventually, in Ian Fleming's James Bond world, and then there's an M sort of name for the big baddie. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, so this guy will end up being sort of the uh, progenitor yeah. of M, and that guy will be the progenitor of Q, and eventually we'll, you know, we'll... Nope. we'll Found MI6, but no. no, just an English literature fun guy. I yeah. don't know if this is the first I'd heard of Quartermain, or if I there's a I don't know if there's a reference in Jumanji because there's that very Quartermain esque character. Oh, totally, yeah, yeah. you know the, the yellow, yeah. The guy yeah I mean, hat. I think he is kind of. I the, keep wanting to call him Colonel Mustard, but that is not close. his name. I, I, they call him the Great White Hunter in the film, and I think he is kind of the prototypical, like the archetype, the fictional version of that character. Yeah, right? the boy's as, own the tale. big game hunter. Yeah, yeah, as much as the you know the, the Lone Ranger and yeah. all your other famous gunslingers are kind of the prototypes for our thing. Yeah, is is that the only one, Arthur? Is that King? Is that or is that the one? That's the one I think okay. I would go with. There, are, there's a, a list of works. You know. Gotcha. Okay, and, and that like one Tarzan. There's lots of books. That's yeah. kind of what I figured. And this one, King Solomon, mine is from 1880, 1885. Wow. Uh, something like that. 85? Yeah. Uh, so I think it's a good starting point and kind of lay the great uh, basis for the rest of this uh, class. And then from there, we, like I said, Bram Stoker's Dracula. You got to do uh, Oscar Wilde. You got to do Portrait of Dorian Gray. Uh, it's just a fascinating story anyway. I think Dorian Gray is just in, it's so interesting in and of itself. Uh, it's a great concept. The the aging portrait is a lot of fun. So I'd really like to spend some time probably on that. Uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Jules Verne, I'm not familiar with, but it would be uh, definitely, you gotta, you gotta see what Captain Nemo's all about, see if, where his kung fu roots lie, who he, <laughs> who his sensei is, who he trained under, uh, what belt he attained. Uh, you gotta know these things, people. Um, and then from there, we're gonna do The Invisible Man uh, by H.G. Wells, and, you know, get into that. Maybe watch the original movie. And, Makes sense. Yeah. Little yeah. Claude Rains. I was wondering, oh, yeah. are you gonna try, would you try to do any readings uh from the the comics run if not the like the whole first volume maybe, maybe the first volume i mean it's not very long you know yeah. it's a pretty quick looking read and and it'd be kind of interesting to discuss that dichotomy of shifting the perspective from mina mm-hmm. uh harker slash murray to uh alan quartermain in the film <laughs> sorry <laughs> i've been i've been fighting that for like 30 minutes now. Uh, the fact that they didn't let him order something shaken not start at the bar in the beginning is a real missed opportunity, I think. They really are leaning on his history as Bond in yeah. a big way in this movie. So yeah, it kinda, is kind of surprising. Uh, but that's that's the course. I, I think you just keep it simple and you just do the lit thing and, and look at these characters. And a lot, you know, the movie really relies on your knowledge of the characters. If you know who Dorian Gray is or you know who the Invisible Man is, that kind of lets you to infer quite a bit about the plot and where it's going to go. Also, is the Phantom supposed to be the Phantom of the Opera, or is that just? I believe that is. The, I think that's the, the implication. Yeah. So, uh, although he's, they're definitely doing like a Fu Manchu type thing with like his yeah, whole look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd maybe do Phantom. Of the, what's his name? Hugo. 
Victor Hugo, yes. Yeah. Yes. So maybe. That that book's like a thousand pages, so we'll see. <laughs> I was thinking I might recommend something um, that I'm aware of from the comics. I have not read the comics. I want to be very, very clear. None of us have, yeah. So, I think we've all been trying to be clear that uh, we didn't do a whole lot of research on the writing just so we didn't seem overly knowledgeable on, on Alan Moore's work on this one. So the character Orlando appears, um, which is oh, uh, tight. Uh, from the Virginia Woolf novel Orlando, uh, later on the Derek, Jar- uh, Derek Jarman film um, Orlando starring Tilda Swinton. And Orlando is uh, sort of a, an ageless, non-dying, immortal kind of character. Gotcha. But Orlando selects gender based on whim throughout. And so I, I, I just might just toss in Virginia yeah. Woolf's Orlando because That'd that's be cool. another... I mean, she's uh, Virginia Woolf's obviously writing more into the 20th century. Yeah. But, I, again... Moore yeah. has already pulled it in in terms of that, so yeah. there's a thing there. Yeah, that's um, fun. Yeah, and Orlando is just a fascinating character in general. So, yeah. cool. uh, there you go. Well, hey Dalton, what class are you teaching? Well, Arthur wisely kept it simple, but I am an idiot, uh, so I will be doing none of that. Checks uh, out. We are going to be teaching. Uh, Dustin often will remind uh, Arthur and I when introing this section of the show that it doesn't have to be a film class. You know, it could be anything—a history class, a, you know, a psychology class, a, a sociology class, a theology class. Lots of avenues we can go down. And I did decide, you know what, let's do a history class. But then I remembered, uh, I'm poorly read, uh, and I don't study history <laughs> for a living, so I don't just, like, have a bunch of history tomes I can refer to. I just, you know, know the history that I look up or hear about and find interesting and remember factoids. So darn it, aren't I too stupid to teach a history class? Uh, but it turns out there's a lot of movies about the thing that I want to talk about. So that's what we're going to do. So it is a history class, but we are kind of... It's it's one of my famous bullshit classes. Uh, that's a 1,000 level for uh, somebody else's uh, field. Uh, where, yeah, we're just kind of... We're going to use movies to talk about a real-life phenomenon. Um, we've done this a few times on the show before, uh, and this one is going to be... Uh, hey, how a war gets started... How's that happen? Well, it turns out capitalism. Hard work. That's right. Determination, bootstrapping, selling guns. Uh, we're going to talk about a fellow by the name of Basil Zakharov, uh, who more or less started World War I. Uh, he really is the true phantom. Uh, the character, uh, the villain, uh, of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, his his plot is a real thing that really happened, uh, and that is a thing that I, I didn't know when I you know saw this film in two thousand and three, but I know now. And I'm just kind of endlessly fascinated by, endlessly fascinated by, uh, the fact that we don't talk about this more. Uh, it is just kind of a, a glossed over anecdote. But Basil Zakharov is responsible for getting tanks uh, into countries' hands, uh, subs into countries' hands. Like nobody had this shit before Basil. Uh, my dude was thorough uh, and accomplished, and also ended up in a weird checkpoint. Uh, situation that involved him uh, ending up getting strip searched in the cold, uh, and he didn't even get any chocolate. Uh, he was Aww. supposed to get some chocolates. Basil was a bad dude. Uh, nothing bad really happened to him except for that uh, amusing uh, anecdote towards the end of his uh, career as an arms dealer. Weird guy. We're going to read some stuff about him. Uh, there's a couple of uh, famous biographies about him. I know about him from uh, the podcast Behind the Bastards. Uh, but again, a real dude, an interesting uh piece uh, of history and again i think a fun jumping off point both that that real person and the leave extraordinary gentlemen are, are a fun place for us to kind of look at war in the 20th century uh basically world war one through the cold war because that kind of chain of events is you know inextricably linked none of those things happen without each other uh none of them happen in a vacuum we kind of have to talk about all of them to talk about any of them uh, so once we, we do that groundwork, I think we're going to pivot to Pan's Labyrinth, uh, talk a little bit about the Spanish Civil War uh, and how that laid the background for the the fight between, uh, well, let's just put it how it is, communism and fascism that would inevitably uh, consume Europe and the whole globe, um, and then fascism won uh, the Cold War, weirdly enough. Um, it's a long story. We don't have time to get into it. We're talking about other shit. Uh, Dustin's shooting me a look. You know what I'm talking about. Operation Paperclip, baby. Look it up. Um, so, we're going to look at, yeah, Arthur's uh, pantomiming a shotgunning beers at me. Um, I do sound like your uncle. I am aware of that. That's the weird thing about history. The more you read about it, the more it does make you sound like an insane person, especially if you can't <laughs> cite sources constantly. Uh, but again, I think Pan's Labyrinth presents us both with the, the fantasy stuff that we have here in LXG, which is just fun and uh, hoot. Uh, but Pan's Labyrinth takes that fantasy uh, and, and that kind of a, a similar, I wouldn't even say similar aesthetic, but kind of uh, 
similar in that late 19th century kind of Victorian grotesque beauty. Um, I just, again, it's it, woo, hot take. I like Guillermo del Toro movies. Uh, but yeah, it's it's got a good look, man. Uh, and a, more importantly than that, an interesting psychological understanding of the ideologies that would come to define Europe throughout the 20th century. Um, and, and I think that's where Pan's Labyrinth uh, uh, value lies in this class, is kind of understanding all these psychologies that underline uh, the, this ideological conflict uh, that it not even defines Europe in the 20th century, defines uh, the 21st century, I, you, you could argue. Uh, next, we're going to look at uh, a film that I like a lot, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, a good Cold War movie. Uh, lots, too long, too slow, and I love it. I absolutely <laughs> love it. Uh, but again, a, a fun movie about the Cold War and about these personalities and ideologies. And, and again, just underlining this point that wars don't just happen. Uh, they are constantly about to happen or, you know, feet are either on the gas or on the brakes at all times uh, in matters of state. Um, and, and I think Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy underlines that, as does the film K-19, which we've talked about here on the show. It's schlocky and silly, but also reminds you just how close we come all the time to complete and utter global annihilation. Um, next, we are going to pivot to the 21st century. We'll kind of use those films and those some readings related to those films to kind of anchor our understanding of the conflict in the 20th century. Uh, and then we'll look at post-state conflict, which is kind of the defining attribute of uh, military conflicts in the 21st century, right? Um, obviously, there are still state actors, but as the Cold War had proxy wars, so does... Uh, the war on terror, and and really, it's not a war. It's just a con it's just war. It, there is just uh, proxy wars and border disputes uh, ad nauseum throughout the globe. And I think that is a thing that is interesting about the twenty first century. Twenty first century, and an extremely linked to nine eleven, obviously. And uh, LXG is very much a post nine eleven movie in its own weird way. Uh, not really on the surface, and not in any immediately discernible way. But I think when we get into analysis, it'll be you know. We'll talk about it a little bit, but we'll look at Vice, uh, starring uh, oh my gosh, uh, Christian Christian Bale. Bale. Thank you so much. I, I was immediately trying to pivot to thinking of the director's name and forgot Bale. <laughs> um, what are you going to do? Um, but yeah, it's uh, what's his doodle? I forgot Adam, Adam McKay, Adam McKay uh, our comedy comedy sweetheart, doing uh, Shakespeare. Weirdly enough, yeah. So we're going to look at Vice, Starship Troopers, and Lord of War uh, with uh, uh, Nick Cage. Uh, just kind of a run of films, looking at some. Very interesting questions about the 21st century, and I think Starship Troopers is a fun one because it uh, knew the questions of the 21st century before they had been asked, which I think is very interesting. So yeah, that's the class. Uh, we're just going to sort of talk about the conditions that allow wars to start because they don't just happen when one place blows up something in another place. Uh, Germany robbing the Bank of London is not how a war starts. It is somebody sold Germany a tank and told them you should rob the Bank of London. Um, intelligence and uh, arms proliferation are uh, are the means of the day. So yeah, Dustin, what are you thinking about? I am thinking about aesthetics um, because I do like how this movie looks, and I think that's the most important thing about the movie, the most interesting thing about okay. this movie, is just its uh, particular kind of aesthetic, which uh, if you read the reviews, you start seeing uh, diesel punk, steampunk, you know, Victorian, neo-Victorian sort of terminology mm -hmm. tossed about. And I am not going to sort of try to uh, pin down this film. Because You're not offering a taxonomy. On this particular one, because I think it's kind of a mess. I mean, it really is kind of a mess. But um, I want to talk about the fashion punks uh, in general, um, in terms of the aesthetics, not... Specifically, the fashion punk, as in the person who goes to Hot Topic and tries to no. be hard and cool, <laughs> and they're not. Um, no, you just you just bought a studded uh, bracelet. You are not real. Moving on. Uh, no. Sorry, no, you, poor teens. He's showing his Gen X. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You got to be true. Um, yeah, well, the teens have to do something before real bad things happen to them. <laughs> yeah, you listen to a record. Um, <laughs> That would be the okay. Sorry, you you sound like a uh, look. Older, you and I older. both sound like old men today. I'm, I'm a curmudgeon and I don't care. So. But but what you are saying is you're your cyberpunks, your skypunks, your cyberpunks, your yeah, all those various and kinds of punks and the aesthetics that go around them. Um, I don't. I'm I'm certain I could find articles and readings and whatnot to do that. I did not do the work to do that. I just went ahead and put together a filmography uh, for now for that. Um, starting with uh, the idea of the cyberpunk, particularly the noirish cyberpunk, and I'm not going where you might expect me to go, which would be Blade Runner. Uh, rather, I'm going to go to Alex Proyas's 
Dark City. Yeah, a little bit later on in that kind of that evolution. And, and a much different kind of cyberpunk. Yes. Yeah, Very, but a very noirish. Totally, totally. Very, very noirish kind of stuff going on there. And the ways in which those particular kind of aesthetics are sort of being remade, reused, and repurposed for uh, uh, various reasons. In terms of steampunk, um, my selection is actually a Japanese animated film, uh, Steam Boy, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's fairly popular. Um, Google, I don't know this one. Google some images. Uh, Steam, okay. Steam Boy um, has adventures in a steam-powered kind of Japanese anime kind of world. Um, the, the, the images are cool. Um, they're very, very fun. Um, boilers and lots and lots of steam running a uh, lots of lots of technologies that are kind of surprising then we're going to move into uh, joe johnson and the rocketeer yes, oh, yeah. yeah we are uh, uh, also steam boy does rule yeah. i love steam boy yeah i you, want him to be my best friend you know yeah. anything about it and yeah the images themselves and i can see why you're talking about this alongside the rocketeer very right. similar like art deco aesthetic and i think that is kind of maybe a through line in all these punks is a sort of some art deco art homages. deco uh victorian yeah all yeah. of that kind of stuff and just sort of playing around those images and then um lastly um we got to do a little will smith and go wickawawa uh to the oh, wild wild yes. west um and talk about the sort of american versions of the uh, steampunk aesthetic in the American West. Maybe the most expensive steampunk movie ever made. Probably. I think it is. And it's a disaster. Uh, but that being said, it's a lot of fun. And then just, again, talking about those styles, moving on into the discussions of the aesthetics. And there's a, there's a, there's a ray gun punk and atomic punk and a number of other sort of 50s kind of aesthetics that you can use. Uh, and uh, talking about uh, there's a sort of cultural phenomenon that goes on around that. So thinking about the conventions, uh, the sort of do-it-yourself uh, arts and crafts kind of hobbyist design uh, for various little items and fashion and conventions and all that good stuff. So well, that would be the class. There's also some interesting uh, like thematic and ideological through lines mm -hmm. in a lot of the works that are in this kind of hub of aesthetics. Um, there, there is an interesting overlap in a lot of them. Right, and, and sometimes it's quite progressive, um, especially the more science fiction it gets, it's quite progressive, but like in the, uh, the version of like neo-Victorianism, which is kind of sometimes the aesthetic assigned to Penny Dreadful, um, sure. uh, that it's... it's uh, very conservative in some senses. Well, there, there, there is this... The introduction of anachronisms kind of does allow you to be anachronistic with your you know, your politics, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's interesting. Although, I don't know. I feel like Penny Dreadful's mm, doing not, multiple things. I'm not saying Penny Dreadful itself oh. is conservative. I'm talking about the aesthetic. Of Neo-Victorian. Okay, oh, the, sure, Vic sure. the Neo-Victorian aesthetic. And yeah, those people are kind, kind of, of getting, fetishization of the Victorian aesthetic. Getting into that. Sure, yeah, okay. That gets to be kind of conservative, yeah. That makes clear. sense. Thank you for clarifying. So, yeah. Fun uh, class. Well, maybe. Um, we got a weird gaggle of classes here. Uh, you're going to learn a lot uh, about literature and history and uh, design. Apparently, yeah. And fashion. all through film, because that's like, how we talk to people. So, uh, I think, though, now we've reached a point where we probably better get down to business. You don't want to see my hand where my hip be at. We'll do our best. It's business. It's business time. All right, dear listener, we are back with analysis, and uh, Dalton, you raise an interesting point, uh, and I want to sort of begin with that, uh -huh. uh, because as a 2003 film, this is a... Well, we don't want to see his hand where his hip be at? Uh, I know. What's the you, point? You don't want to see <laughs> what's over there. Um, don't. Wah, wah, wicka, wah, wah. Um, no, I want to ask the question, how is this film, and in what ways is this film sort of articulating itself as a post-9-11 film? I mean, it's, again, it's it's all this non-state actor stuff, right? Like, it is, and again, that's stuff from the comic, as, as I understand it, um, and probably things that predate 9-11, potentially. I mean, mm -hmm. the screenplay didn't come out of nowhere. I didn't look at the production history. You know, the book, I mean, the book's published in 99. That's, yeah, okay, so maybe it was a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah, I, I think they kind of greenlit it pretty yeah. quick, or even with the understanding that they were writing it, so it was picked up as they were working on the book. Well, uh, so maybe it is then the case, much like Starship Troopers, which we I felt like I was running long, so kind of breezed over that. But that film's also a 9-11 movie. doesn't even know it, because it hadn't happened yet. But, right. But it, uh, it, the thing about this kind of story is it's not necessarily about 9-11 per se. It is about non-state actors, and those are things that occur throughout human history. And it doesn't, and you can extrapolate that into science fiction or, you know, uh, retro uh, futurism or, you know... Um, an anachronistic take on, you know, classic literature, you can introduce those ideas because they're not foreign to us. They're 
pretty well known, whether it is, you know, your Basil Zakharovs or your Osama Bin Laden's non-state actor or Che Guevara's for that matter. Like we, we list off non-state actors um, and usually the lists that we give tip our hand at why we're using these examples. It's much like vigilante stuff, right? Because it is the same thing. It's just a larger scale, typically. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it all does become about uh, politically motivated actions outside of the authority of law or the state, right? And and the question is, are you acting within your own state or are you acting on other states without the expressed, you know, condolences or commitments of your state? Uh, I'm trying really hard not to talk about the mercenaries in, uh, in Venezuela right now. Uh, just because it feels like unhelpful, and I don't, I'm not well read enough on it to like sound super smart while talking about it. But again, I guess I just name check it to say that that's the thing that's happening right now. That's how colonialism started. Like Alan Quartermain uh, is not a you know is not a real dude, but there's a lot of dudes like Alan Quartermain either in Africa or in South and Central America where they just said, "Hey, I've got a lot of guns and a lot of dudes, you know, who are drunk enough to follow me." I'm just going to go down there and see what happens. And it turns out, if you're one of those guys and it works out for you and not everybody dies, sometimes your government's into it, which is a weird thing that has happened more times than you would think in human history. Uh, and I guess all of that is to say, that's how it's 9-11 movie, and right. that 9-11 is a thing that's kind of happened a bunch. Well, not I, on that scale and not with the same consequences, but... The yeah. factors were in play. Exactly. And I think the way in which uh, the actions of our Phantom slash M character are uh, sort of couched in terms of terrorism, you know, the the, the, yeah. the dynamite bombs and those kind of things. Yeah, uh, the, and, and yeah uh, military attacks on civilian centers. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that sort of elicitates that, and this idea that we've got to put together a super team, right? And then putting together the super team, I, I, in a weird way, it, it sort of anticipates some of the morass and sort of ambivalence that people begin to feel, you know, in sort of a post-Patriot Act kind of world. Is like, wait a minute, we're putting all these power in these places, but do we even trust the people who are assigning and making the assignments? And the fact that M as a character ends up being duplicitously bad guy and turns out to be James Moriarty. I love that Sherlock Holmes pull. We've been saving that since to get into yeah. spoiler space here. As you mentioned, you got misdirected by that entirely because you thought there was going to be way more James Bond, Ian Fleming stuff going mm-hmm. on because of the 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 M moniker, right? Um, yeah, it's it's a fun misdirect, totally, because people are way more aware of James Bond than they are of Moriarty, even if they kind of are aware of yeah. Sherlock. Well, that I'm just very aware of Sean Connery, and so I. I, I mean, in, yeah. exactly. The film directs you in that direction, mm-hmm. almost by design. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of that working there, um, and I do think it does connect us though to this idea of sort of. State-run, state-sponsored, state-semi-supported mm-hmm. sort of colonial action as well with the character of Quartermain. I mean, again, the boy's yeah. own tale. Uh, it feels very jingoistically Rudyard, Kipl- Rudyard Kipling kind of stuff, mm. you know, kind of at work here as well. Um, I'm thinking about Kim. Um, I wondered how long into the show it would be before Kipling came up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, it's it's weird because I, I'm thinking about the end of the film uh-huh. specifically. Uh, so uh, Yeah, at, that, that real, like, Dark Continent stuff at the end of the movie. Yeah, and how they're going to raise him from the dead, uh-huh. apparently. Yeah. Does that happen in the comic? I mean, do we even find I out? Know, anybody I know. know. I, well, look. I didn't get that far. I, you know, I could have read a Wikipedia page, but I didn't want to you know, act like it. I knew something. Uh, yeah. So I don't. <laughs> well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, you got I, a standard to uphold. Look, I know like I act a lot I act like I know a lot of things and I need to be clear about where that line is. Some of it's stuff that has entered my brain and I just can't recall enough information to give it to you correctly. Uh, but yeah, I don't know anything about the well, comics. It's it's unimportant as to whether or not it's But no, it is a curious material. thing. But it's curious insofar as it is, again, this sort of white savior, yeah, sure. this great white hope, you know, in addition to being the great white hunter, and that uh, he is the one white man who is so, again, um, efficient in the distribution of violence that he becomes respected by uh, the magical minorities. Well, and that is the interesting thing about not necessarily all great white hunter portrayals, but this one certainly, and, and I would say some at least, um, and really all like colonizer stories or, you know, retired colonizer stories, I guess I should say. You know, Rooster Cogburn being one, you know, a lot of John Wayne roles. The most interesting ones are characters that have come to see their role in a genocide usually, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, th- I think Quartermain has that. Uh, he will pretend. Uh, golf strikes look like I'm doing a, a, a deliberately bad Sean Connery because I don't think Corner. I could do a good one today. Cornery. I really like uh, Drawn Peter, Cornery. Uh, Peter Wilson's uh, impression of him, by the way. We have John Connery is uh, the one that brings back the Terminator. John. John Connery. John. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Thank you for that, Arthur. 
Uh, yeah, I, I really love uh, Peter Wilson uh, as Mina doing the uh, impression of Quartermain bit. Yeah. Uh, it's very funny. Anyway, he, he seems kind of disillusioned, right, with his role in yeah. you know the Europe, European uh, expedition into Africa. I like think that's the vibe that I get from. It's mostly a personal loss, right? His his kid got killed. That's a good point. I mean, he doesn't yeah, care I, about the people. It's yeah, the fact did, that he lost too much himself. And he feels like he's just sort of adopted Africa with you know maintaining yeah. his Victorian trappings. But it's like I'm actually more of an African now than I am an Amer- or an Englishman, mm-hmm. and uh, therefore you know I don't care you know rule Britannia and all those good yeah. jokes, right? Yeah. Well, man, a lot of one-liners in this movie, which is again more proto MCU stuff, just like quips all the way down, huh? Um, yeah, it's it's interesting uh, in terms of characters to pull from, and knowing more, uh, knowing his work, I assume the comic uh, probably does deal with you know uh, his past. Could be, I, I imagine that it, it could go one of either a couple of ways. He the, gets weird with age. The real interesting thing about Quartermain in the comic is that he's actually an opium addict. See, and that's Mina a, goes to an opium dim to actually to recruit in, him in Whoa. Egypt to recruit him. That makes so much I think more it's sense. Egypt. I think it's Cairo, something like that. Uh, see, that's a yeah, there you but go. Yeah, he's an opium yeah. addict that had to, he had to drag out and clean up. That's, that's a real Alan Moore choice. Yeah, it is already better. Yeah, uh, because it makes more sense based on the history that he has. Yeah. Although, again, I mean, the film doesn't to depict him that much uh, better. I mean, uh, this is aiming for a teen. I mean, a yeah. kids' teen demographic. For, yeah, four quadrant. There. Yeah. Well, to the point of teen boys going to the motion picture show uh and you know that's who they wanted hey they got my money um but you just mentioned arthur that mina is kind of the team lead and protagonist of the comic uh and while we can't speak to her portrayal within that work we can talk about the movie uh not so much they don't really give her anything to do huh uh she gets to be sexy and scary uh yeah well, I mean, look, it was formative for me when I saw it, but <laughs> as an adult, I can look at that and go, well, this isn't very nuanced, is it? I was surprised they didn't give her more revealing costumes, though, and I think they really shy away from that. Yeah, you know, it could have been much worse, and that was nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't sexualize her m- more uh, or less more, than. Look, any more egregious, much less egregiously than other things from the same era, I guess. Fair. Don't the have pro- her running around nude like Rebecca Romaine in X-Men. There we go. This is the barometer we're using to grade things. But Sean Connery does call her the vampire lady at one point, and I am not convinced that that <laughs> is just Sean Connery not remembering Sean the character's <laughs> name. He's too drunk to know what's happening anymore. And they were doing a stunt. Yeah, like they're in a moving car when you said it. They can't. Oh, fuck, that's a complicated setup. Yeah. You can't run that too many times. They got this movie in at under a hundred million dollars. Mm, yeah, I think they probably just used the the take that they had. Yeah, uh, he does not seem to be having fun. He woman. seems so miserable in this fucking movie. Yeah, I think uh, he is. This is the dude that turned down the Lord of the Rings and the Matrix because he didn't understand them. Sean, how do you? Didn't they read The Hobbit to you as a child? Right. Or did you not read the? Oh, he probably didn't read to his kids. Look, I don't know. I'm it was not... probably being written when he was a child, right? Yeah, that's uh, what, yeah. yeah. He's because he's born in the twenties, so he's maybe too old for it, I yeah. guess. But so still, it, yeah. I don't know. It's just it's it's weird to me that Sean Connery passes up so many big sci-fi and fantasy properties, like famously, like his name is all over, like this this wave of nerd shit that takes over Hollywood at, at the end of the nineties, kind of going into now. Sean Connery's name is all over these like potential cast lists when you go look at them, and it's so strange to me that this is the one that he picks. Um, and I mean, therein lies the decision to pivot right from Mina as protagonist because you got Sean Connery, you got to give him top billing, otherwise he's not going to do your movie. Yeah, right. But, yeah, I don't know. It's just a weird choice for him. Um, and he's so bored with the film that you don't really get any nuance of the stuff we're talking about, Dustin. All these kind of, as you said, or, or, as Arthur mentioned, it does really seem more centered around the personal loss than you know any you know he pays lip service to doing terrible things, but we don't really get into the nuances of it, and we don't really have any big grand statements to say about the British Empire here. So he's not trying to atone for anything that he's done. Yeah, no, no. And I think with Mina, you know, I mean, she's probably one of the, potentially the most interesting of the characters, you know, as as the vampire lady um well her and, and Jekyll the Hyde. soul yeah and the sole yeah. female in this league of gentlemen um but yeah she just kind of becomes the butt of uh connery's kitchen jokes yeah a lot of them yeah yeah well and, and the, the sort of way in which she's uh written in is that well m said well her husband used to be you know a member and she's sort of there representing his absence and i'm like wait wait why just so yeah, I don't yeah, like it's, it. It's, it's, it's the whole thing's weird uh, with her. And, and again, it's really weird with everybody. Um, Nemo's, uh, again, there is there is such an interesting opportunity 
for Nemo and Quartermain to say more to each other than they do, and like the characters react to one another in a way that lets you go, oh, cool, the interesting dynamic that could happen here might happen right now. Uh, Movie's not going to give you that. Unfortunately, it's not that interesting, despite Nemo being the coolest thing about the whole movie. Truly. For sure. Yeah. Truly. Uh, An absolute unmitigated badass from start to finish. Just has the best one-liners. I walk a different path that doesn't make any sense. It's so cool. Uh, I love it. Uh, Yeah, I think he's great, and it's another drop ball. Same with Mina. And, you know, lots of movies we talk about on the show are, but it is frustrating to, like, just see the the very clear, like, avenues a film could go down and for them to not do it. Just it's vexing sometimes. For sure, for sure. So there's a line in Robert Louis Stevenson's um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, initially, in the first chapter or two, I can't remember exactly, but where someone has initially... I've read it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, Mr. Humble, bra- read. humble brag. Humble <laughs> brag. You just look at me like I'm stupid. Uh, but, no, I'm looking at you uh, with the fact that you're over here quoting... Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's not is what I'm about to do is not that impressive. Um but what is what the uh, the thing is called mm. as someone encounters it is a Hulk. Hell yeah, dude. And I'm just I'm that just owns. <laughs> I did not know that. So I'm just gonna say so Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde as the Hulk in this film works so well. Oh, right? we even get the Red Hulk, which is a lot of fun too. Dude, the nameless goon who downs too much of the Jekyll. <laughs> No, you're doing too much. No, don't do too much. It's it's honestly way better CGI than you expect it to be. Yeah, and I think what well, Hyde's mostly practical, right? Oh yeah, no, yeah. they mm-hmm. got him in a weird stilt suit that looks very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it looks cool. Yeah, it does. Uh, they both just look like uh, the tumors just punching each other. Uh, it's disgusting. Yes. <laughs> I love how grotesque it is. I really do. Two I, raging, veiny tumors punching I, each other. Look, this is why nobody went and saw the movie. You see Weird. Jekyll. You see Jekyll at a production store or in a poster, or Mr. Hyde on a, uh, on a poster. You go, oh my god, what? I no. don't want this. Yeah, yeah, very veiny. But I, I, I <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, I do love though um, the sort of talking to himself. His is various. It's cool. This duality through yeah. the mirrors. Yeah, like I, I really, very much enjoy that. And what I was thinking though is, you know, a problem the MCU always had was not being able to put together a standalone Hulk movie that really had legs. And I'm just going to say, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde is where it's at, because that's a standalone novel that sort of, again, projects itself forward into the potential uh, of uh, him being cast in this sort of team up in The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I, I don't know how you make that movie uh, for a Hulk character, but you I put want... It in the, you put it in the modern day. I'm already writing it in my head, man. But I want my Dr. Jekyll movie. Arthur's absolutely right. It's a Bloomhouse movie. Mm-hmm. Hands down, no question. Don't even think about it twice. And yeah, it's just about gender stuff. Yeah. Yeah, obviously. It's going to be super good. Yeah. Raging masculinity and... Oh, man. Big, yeah. veiny... Or you could... Yeah. Well, yeah. Dual or, identity. Or you could do something even more different with it. Ah, there's a lot of options here. Dustin, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. Uh, I, I would watch that now. Uh, I know that there was... I don't know when it was. It had been late aughts. Maybe even early tens. Uh, but somebody did like a really uh, bad... Uh, like direct to sci-fi channel Jekyll movie. Yeah, mm, yeah. I've yeah. seen like ten minutes of it. I don't know. I got nothing for you there. Uh, what 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 do you have to say about this film? Anybody? We good? I feel good. I feel like the conclusion we've come to, unless Dustin has something else, is that this movie has far more interesting ideas that it fails to capitalize on that we're much more interested in. That's the long and the itself. short of it. Yeah. Well, you know, here's my thing. My by my possible solution is um, it is a sort of proto MCU movie. Totally. Um. If it had sort of put together more of the formula, I think it really would have worked. If we had seen Mina Harker, the movie. If we had seen Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the movie. If we had seen An Invisible Man. If we had seen <laughs> Dorian Gray. This is how movie studios get closed down. Is you let somebody listen. You let somebody like Dustin in the room, who's kind of charismatic, and sells you something that sounds interesting on paper. But then everybody in the room forgets that people are I'm stupid. I'm calling it the gothic universe. Uh, the goth- yeah, the, the, Victor- yeah the, 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 the VCU, the Victorian <laughs> Cinematic Universe. That's very funny. Uh, and if you'd put together that movie, that Sherlock Holmes movie, in which Moriarty is kind of the more interesting character than Sherlock Holmes, goes off the Reichenbach Falls, like that's the cliffhanger that propels you into the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That's probably a thing. Doing Reichenbach Falls from Moriarty's perspective is a fun would be a fun twist. Oh, absolutely. Instead of following Sherlock, you just yeah. make Moriarty the anchor. 
I mean, yeah, I, I guess Dustin's... You don't make them all. I mean, really, you, I, you, I you do some team-up kind of stuff, you know? But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, look... We, you, know, you got Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, that's a team-up. You just make Penny Dreadful. A, to- a Tom Sawyer movie, you know? Do we need a Tom Sawyer movie? No, nah. absolutely not. <laughs> He's Hawkeye, isn't he? Okay, you're He's right. He's absolutely the Hawkeye <laughs> yeah, in this movie, no question. Uh, yeah, you just watch Penny Dreadful. It's doing all the same. Like uh, Penny all, Dreadful's better, yeah. All the things that we're saying that we wish this did, I mean, Penny Dreadful gets into, right? Like, all the, the ways in which cultures eat each other, and folklore gets assumed and all the gender stuff that we're talking about um, and all the like industrialization and wasn't Victorianism a bad, 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 bad time? Yeah. There, there, there are places where you can find this kind of mashup fun um, and it's a little bit deeper. Yeah, I, I do want to see the Mina Harker fights out from under Coverture kind of thing though. I think that'd be fun. I like the fight choreography uh, between her and Dorian Gray uh, towards the end. I like the, the effect uh, of them healing uh, is fun visually speaking. Yeah. Yeah, just we're gonna the be at stuff this dusting all off day. is really cool. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The dust and the, yeah, we're gonna be at this all day. It's yeah. The, look, I mean, it is a proto MCU movie. The quips, like the beat of the quips, is mm-hmm. it's so weird to watch it. It feels kind of like a movie at a time, a little bit, honestly. Yeah. I think so. All right, well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on um, the non-MCU movie of the DCU, uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. At least it began there. It ends up some other publishing house, it seems like. I don't uh, know if this is Vertigo or not. I don't think it is. It's, it's American... DC to start with, right? And then it's is somewhere it? else? No, I don't no. think it's Vertigo. No, I don't think it is. Oh. No, I think this is one of, I think this is after it's Alan like Moore American starts working something. for DC. Oh, fair yeah. enough. American something? Does that ring a bell? I don't know. I've got yeah. the comic. We'll look after this. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's a lower... I don't think it's DC. It's though. not one of the big three. Yeah, it's not DC Dark Horse. Uh, Marvel. Okay. Well, whatever. Um, uh, Nonetheless. Image. Uh, anyway. Uh, okay. Well, four. Okay. We can just keep listing comic books publishers. I could be a nerd. Dustin, that's not what we're here to Shelf do. Shelf or trash. Go, Arthur. There it is. I'm going to just very softly toss it in the trash. You you don't need to catch this one. Uh, it, it has some fun to offer, but yeah, you're not missing out if you uh, have never caught up with 2003's. Uh, tepid hit, uh, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah, I'm right there with Arthur. Um, he mentioned a bunch of movies from around the same time that have kind of like a similar visual palette. They're better. Uh, yeah, it's fu- it's fine. It's yeah. not. It's it's not, honestly, it's not as. It, I don't know that it deserved the critical spanking that I got upon release. Uh, I am glad though. I don't think we needed a second movie. Like if this had made three hundred million dollars, I I, I pair. Who? I'm I'm afraid to think of what the sequel would have been like. Maybe it would have been cool. Who knows. Maybe. There's no way that I've gotten Connery back. No. If it had made a sequel, I'd have seen it, though. I mean, that's what I could say about myself. Probably, yeah. yes. Yeah. I would have. Yeah. Yeah, I probably would have, too, but I see a lot of dumb stuff. But that being said, I wouldn't shelf it. Um, there, that was my next question. I would watch it, but I wouldn't, you know. And that's it, the same thing with the original here. Um, it's fine. Um, but, yeah, uh, catch it if it's streaming. But otherwise, yeah, you know, there's other things. And as far as that aesthetic goes, there's plenty of other experiments with it that are more interesting. Uh, and various, you know, sort of uh, other types of retro aesthetics um, that are kind of fun. So uh, I would recommend uh, trashing as well. So that's it. Uh, we're done with this show. Is there another show to do, Arthur? I, I think so. But beforehand, before this, but, I want to get back to a, a point I was making earlier about cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue. Oh, you this found is the it. the title of it. Yes, it was simulcast on all four major uh, networks Dude. Um, on April of uh, 1990. Uh, and wow. it has a just murderer's row of cartoon characters, including Alf, Bugs and Daffy, the Smurfs, the Muppet Babies. Garfield, Winnie the Pooh, and Tigger 2, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, Alvin and the Chipmunks, and your favorite childhood cartoon icon, Slimer. Hell yeah. Whoa. And the conceit of this again. And some Ninja Turtles. The conceit of this again is... Don't do drugs. Here's the deal. Okay, here's the setup. Let me just read you this. The The plot chronicles the exploits of Michael, a young teenage boy who is using marijuana. His younger sister, Corey, is constantly worried about him because he started acting differently. When her piggy bank goes missing, her cartoon (laughs) tie-in toys come to life to help her find it. It is Toy Story. It is Toy Story through and through. It was financed by the Ronald McDonald House. Um, It was simulcast. Uh, McDonald's sold a VHS copy that had an introduction from none other than President George H.W. Bush, First Lady Barbara Bush, and their dog, Millie. It had a musical number written by none other than Alan Menken and lyricist Howard Ashman. This is a 30-minute cartoon about don't do drugs with 
just a who's who. All right, well, listen, characters. listen. I watch this thing all of the time. That is incredible. All the time? I, I, I watch it a VHS lot. copy? I probably, it was probably at the library where my mom worked, and uh, I probably okay. re- checked it out a lot. That rules. Because of the c- cartoons. Yeah. You why were so excited I? about this Avengers mouth. It's like, who framed Roger Rabbit? That's yeah. why you watch it, is to see everybody else. No, it makes else. perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. No. Uh, if uh, this, uh, this has to be on YouTube or something. Uh, if you have not seen it, it you've got to watch it. It definitely has to be in the wild. Uh, it is, I remember being at a, quite a hoot. Well, listener, if you want to know more about... Oh, sorry. Next week. Um, oh, next week. I went on a tangent. You did. I yeah. loved it. But we are sticking with this kind of era of early aughts, late 90s blockbuster next week when we look at a movie that got usurped by the meteoric hit that was Armageddon uh, when we take a look at Mimi Letters' 1998 apocalyptic Deep Impact starring Bobby De Niro... Uh, not De Niro. Uh, Bobby Duvall and Taylor Leone and uh, Elijah Wood and a slew Truly of other Really stacked and, cast. Yeah. Fun, fun people. So that's what we're going to be taking a look at next week. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Arthur. So that's it. That's the show. Um, Not quite. You want to say something, Dalton? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't. I know you don't want me to, but I do have to. Uh, because what I was going to say is that if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Twitter at good underscore trash, or you can send us an email at goodtrashgenregaz uh, at gmail.com. And uh, we do have a Facebook page. We don't pay a whole lot of attention to it. But uh, by any time in any way, if you want to have a conversation with us, uh, feel free to do so. <laughs> Well, you come for the king. <laughs> I'll, tell you I'll tell you what, guys. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Pride cometh before.